0: everybody. Good to see you this morning. <clears throat> um, glad you're here. Got a question to start with. Have you ever been caught? Like mean, caught? You know, caught. Have you ever been caught? Maybe doing something you shouldn't have been doing? When I was a kid, the term we used was Busted. Ha, busted. And you had to elongate all the bowels like that. And everybody knew you were doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Maybe it was uh, something that you said. You want a little ketchup for that foot you just stuck in your mouth? Mm Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was a speeding ticket. Aren't those fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it was something more egregious or less. But you were busted. You got caught. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember that kind of knot in your stomach? Even now, some of you are beginning to squirm just a little bit because you're remembering a moment when you got caught and you just as soon not remember it at all, right? Have you ever been caught? Now, it's perfectly natural to want to avoid that feeling. That's why you're squirming. Your nervous system says, "Mm Mm-mm, I don't like this. I don't want to feel this way anymore. But it's like we learned last week in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve got busted. There's this idea that when we learn what good and evil actually are, and we do learn these things as we get older, but when we learn the difference between good and evil, we want to distance ourselves from those things that we've been caught doing that we shouldn't be doing. This is a natural human condition. We cover up, we lie, we hide, and I think it's baked into our DNA. I don't think there's any way of of getting around it. This reminds me of a story about a mom who baked some cookies. Mom baked the cookies and she had a little boy And she told the little boy, don't eat the cookies. What did I say? Don't eat the cookies. Okay. So she puts them in a cookie jar and she looks at him again, repeating the fact because kids need repetition. So do adults, by the way. But kids need repetition. Don't eat the cookies. What did I just tell you? Don't eat the cookies. And he's doing this the entire time. A few minutes later, Mom comes back into the kitchen, and there the little boy is with one of the kitchen chairs pulled up to the counter and his arm stuck in the cookie jar. And what are you doing? Mom, I'm resisting temptation. i been caught. I've been busted. Resisting temptation. In today's world, it seems like politicians and celebrities, they get caught And then they try to avoid, or they stonewall, or they make stuff up, or they settle out of court with no admission of wrongdoing. Have you heard that one? Yeah. And I have to be honest, I wonder. I wonder if we've lost some sense of remorse. And I also wonder at the same time if there's a better way to handle that weird feeling you get when you're caught. Wonder if there's a way to do it. We've been following the story of, of David, uh, David and, and Bathsheba <coughs> for the last couple of weeks. <coughs> Talk about somebody who got caught, right? And there's been three parts to the story, and we're going we're gonna to deal with the third one today, but let's just do a quick recap. So scene one is the sin. This is what happened. David is complacent. He sends his army off to war. He does not go with him for whatever reason. The text doesn't tell us. silent on that issue. And he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his men, a man named Uriah. Now, to be fair, her role in all of this is very questionable. There's nothing within the text that says that she was either a willing participant or an unwilling participant. It just says that it occurred. Okay, so her role in all this is is highly questionable. But it's a very straightforward narrative. David goes and he's looking and he sees something he probably shouldn't have looked at and shouldn't have looked at long and then he pursued after it and one thing leads to another as is often the case with human beings. And so he goes through all of that. There's not a whole lot of nuance within that, <clears throat> within that part of the story. But then things get interesting, as they often do, because scene two is the cover-up. And, and this is where David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant. She's got a baby on the way. <clears throat> and the text is very clear, given the circumstances, that it's his. And so David attempts a cover-up, not once, but twice. And what's so interesting to me is that Uriah, this this hero within David's army, proves himself more honorable and putting David's actions in sharp contrast to his own. And I think I mentioned this last week, even drunk, Uriah proved himself more honorable than King David. Think about that for a second. Even drunk, he knew what his duty was. He knew the type of life that he wanted to live. He understood where his, his honor rested. <clears throat> and so, David resorts to murder. And here it is, 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Okay, maybe it's because I share a name with a king. But let me tell you, that is one one sentence I hope my name never shows up in the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Mm-mm. Don't want that. It's a it's a very sobering sentence to kind of complete this particular scene. And so what I want to do is I want to return to the story. And I want to see if there's more for us to learn, because scene three is the confrontation. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might might want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't, that's cool. I'll have it up on the screen for you. But as we kind of go through this, I want you to be understanding that this part of the story is wrapping this thing up. This is scene three, this is the conclusion to the entire thing and there's a lot of stuff in here. I'm not gonna be able to cover it all, but there's a couple of things that I think are definitely worth learning. So let's pick it up in 2 Samuel 12, beginning with verse one. The Lord sent Nathan to David, now Nathan is a prophet who replaced Samuel. So within ancient Israel you had, well, you had basically three parts of the government, three ways that, um, that the government of Israel functioned you had prophet priest and king. And in this particular case you have a prophet of God. Now there are multiple prophets but typically God liked to speak through one or just a few especially to kings. In fact it's one of the only it's the only one that I'm aware of where the prophet actually in some ways had more power than the king. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him he said There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and he grew up with him and his children. It sheared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. How many of you are thinking about King George and the ducky right now? Yeah, okay, I figured. Kids grew up on veggie Tales. They know. They know. This parable isn't necessarily about things like adultery and murder, but it does, it does parallel it in at least two different ways. And I want to point these out to you because I think they're important. The first one is that the fact that the rich man ignores his own sheep and his own cattle, okay? He's got lots of them. That's part of the parable. We know this. According to the story, he's got a lot of them and he ignores them. Now interestingly enough, if you think about it, David had many wives, mostly because of political marriages. That was part of the culture. Remember, every time we open the text, we're tourists. There are different cultural things that we don't necessarily understand. But in the ancient Near East, a king typically had some type of harem. That was a group of women that he was married to, usually for political reasons. So he had a whole bunch of wives. But he picked the one that wasn't his. Do you see the parallel? So the rich man ignores his sheep. David ignores his wives. I, there's also another little phrase in here that I, I think is worth pointing out is that um, the lamb was like a daughter to him. Isn't that interesting? Why do you suppose Nathan put that in there? I, why? I mean, obviously it shows that there's a certain type of relationship. Okay, it's a little weird with the lamb, but some of you've got dogs. I know how you are with your dogs. I know how you are with your cats. Trust me, I know about the cats, right? But here he has a lamb, and it, it sleeps with him, and, 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 and it's like a daughter to him. But why a daughter? Why is that? Well, here's the interesting thing. In Hebrew, the term for daughter is bat, B-A-T, bat, bat which is the first syllable of Bathsheba. Ooh, that's, that's poking the bear with sticks a little bit, don't you think? So here we have this term that's used and it's designed to draw your mind to that. Now here's the second thing. The rich man's crime is clearly an abuse of power. He can ignore all of his sheep and cattle, and he has the ability and means and apparently willingness to go out and get the poor man's lamb. It's an abuse of power, just like David. David's initial crime, enticing another man's wife into his bedroom, and the subsequent cover-up through murder, is an abuse of power. He pursued what wasn't his or what wasn't available to him. And here's the other thing, how could she say no? Great question. And then he used his position to set up Uriah's murder. That's an abuse of power. I don't think there's any way of getting around that. And so here we have this parallel. Nathan is making uh, a, a statement using a story. Now David doesn't necessarily know this is a story. And I want you to see what his reaction is. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Now, this is interesting. This statement that he has, okay? His first first idea was, okay, he needs to pay for that crime. For what he did, he deserves death. But then he kind of backpedals just a little bit, okay? A a whole lot. Because he goes from death to must pay for the lamb four times, which, by the way, is um, the prescribed restitution um, for such a thing. Uh, You can find it in Exodus 22 if you're interested. But um, in the Torah, in the law, whenever there is uh, something to do with livestock, restitution is always four times. So he starts with death and then he says, well, okay, I can't really do that. I might want to do that, but I can't do that because I need to be loyal to the law and the law says restitution was four times. So David, David does, does that well. Now, what's really interesting to me um, throughout all of this is that the penalty for adultery that you find in Leviticus 20, verse 10, if you're interested, is death to both. Wow, death to both. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And here David thought he was covering it up. But what he did had displeased the Lord. And so, consequently, Nathan shows up and the truth of his crimes come out that crime is illuminated. You know, it's interesting to me, um, in verse 10 here, um, Nathan prescribes, um, basically prophesies, kind of a punishment. He says, now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Now this is an interesting thing because here's the punishment, right? Remember back, uh, we had talked about this earlier this summer, in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3, David's general, Joab, kills his rival, Abner. And David doesn't want to kill Joab because he's a good commander. So he pronounces, essentially, a curse over Joab's family. And if you remember, the curse was that no one in Joab's family, would be qualified to pick up a sword. Essentially, he had cursed his family to weakness. And here we are, some nine chapters later, David does something probably more heinous, and in contrast, his punishment is not that there would be weakness in his house, the fact that the sword would never depart. There would be constant war in David's lifetime and we see this throughout the text. And we even see it among his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and there's this constant fight between them. It's really interesting. Those two curses as they were are in contrast to one another. Hmm. No warriors, within Joab's family, but continual war in David's. You know what? Neither one of those curses I would like for myself. (laughs) Wouldn't want those. And this is where it gets most interesting. David's crime is out. What does he do What does David do when everything comes to light? Does he deny? Does he stonewall? Does he stall? Does he argue? Does he justify himself? Does he blame others? No. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I don't know what to call this other than the fact that David owned it. He owned his sin. It's out. There's no way of getting around it. The Lord himself had shared this knowledge with his prophet. The prophet brought it back to him. There's no escape here. And David owns it. Can you imagine? He didn't try to dodge it. And it didn't change his circumstances, of course. But he owns it. You know, admitting to a problem is the first step to recovery. We know this um, from psychology and more than a few 12-step programs. And so he admits it and then David asks for forgiveness. And, and, And we know that he asks for forgiveness because he writes a psalm. Remember, David at heart is a poet. He's written a number of the psalms that we find. This one happens to be Psalm 51. I want to share with you just a couple of lines from it. He writes, have mercy on me, O God. And by the way, the note in the text says that this is the Psalm that he wrote after he was caught with Bathsheba, okay? So there's the context. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And you probably have heard this one before. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's there's a lot of admission here. There's a lot of, yeah, I blew it. I don't want to blow it again. Here's what I need. I love this last line, grant me a willing spirit. You know what? Don't don't ever underestimate God's ability to use your willingness. And sometimes you even have to pray the prayer, oh God, help me to be willing to be willing. Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need that. So Psalm 51, we see that he asks for forgiveness here. And frankly, I think the first step in self-awareness, personal relationships, and even discipleship, frankly, is to just tell the truth. I don't know how to get around that. It's the one thing I keep coming back to over and over again. To tell the truth. You have got to start with you. You have to tell yourself the truth. And in that particular case, you need to own your sin because we all have it, we're all prone to it, we're all born into it, and we all carry some of that with us. The point is, is that you have to start by telling yourself the truth, that's how you own it. At the very minimum, quit saying things that make you weak, don't say those things, check your tongue, and commit yourself to the truth, to telling the truth. Now, I do have to put a note of caution here. And those of you who know me or have listened to me uh, speak before, you know that this is something that I come back to on a regular basis because it is very easy to slip into some toxic shame here. Sometimes in our ability to tell, we think we're telling ourselves the truth and what we're doing is we're just shaming ourselves. There's a big difference. We should be ashamed of our bad behavior. There is, that is an emotion that God gives us. Shame reminds us I should say, healthy shame reminds us that we're not God, that we're um, fallible, that we can make mistakes, and and we need to learn from those things. It is a tool. Emotions are always a tool to help us understand how the world is unfolding in front of us, and it's also a tool for our growth. So emotions are never going to go away. That thing you're feeling, that knot in your stomach when you think about those things that you're not proud of, that is part of a healthy shame that reminds you that there are lessons to be learned. In fact, how many of you, don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. How many of you have a particular event in your past you are not proud of and every single time you think about it, you just, you get that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach and, and you, it's just that, that heavy kind of burden. There's a reason for that. It means that you haven't learned the lesson from it yet. Your brain is trying to tell you something. Your spirit is trying to tell you something. And that's perfectly natural. It's not that you're supposed to feel bad about yourself, but rather there is a lesson to be learned there. So God gives us these emotions for a reason. But this is not an opportunity for what we call toxic shame. I'm not good enough. Yeah, that's true, you're not good enough. That's why Jesus came, okay? Can we just get past that part? That's why Jesus is here. But you're also, at the same time, not worthless. Yes, you're not perfect. Yes, you fall short, but you're not worthless. You're not worthless because that's why Jesus came. You might be guilty, but you are not unloved. Don't miss that distinction. That yes, there might be guilt. There may be something that you are not proud of and there is something that you need to own and there's something that you need to take to God to deal with it. You may need to own your sin, but you are not unloved and you are not worthless and that doesn't mean that your entire future rests on the mistake that you made in the past. Quit believing that. Tell yourself the truth. Cool, I got a little fired up there, didn't I? Now look, this is the point of the sermon where it would be very easy to kind of stop and say, okay, own your sin, Uh, go and sin no more. And then we sing another song and we all go out for lunch, right? But it strikes me that yes, we need to own our sin, and yes, we need to ask for forgiveness, But at the very same time, we also need to own our identity. Now hold up for a second, because yeah, you need to tell yourself the truth. But the truth isn't always negative. Why is it that we feel like when Paul writes, oh, you've got to speak the truth in love, we all feel like we've got to love, eno- love them enough to tell them the truth, and it's a painful truth that they need to hear. Why is truth always negative? If you want to avoid sin in the future, you need to own your actual identity. And this is truth too. Paul writes about this, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ. That is just as true as your sin. Don't miss that, church. That yes, we were guilty. Yes, we do stupid things that we wish that we hadn't done. But that's why we have grace and we have mercy. And that's why he has adopted us into sonship and daughtership. That part is just as true. And that's how we need to live our lives in the identity that we are daughters and sons of a living God who's never stopped loving us. Is he happy with your behavior all the time? No, but it doesn't change his love for you. Look, I, I have kids, <clears throat> and when they were little, they were fascinated by things that were dangerous for them. And when you were a kid, you were fascinated by things that were dangerous for them. Look, here's the thing. Um, whatever it is, is that we got to get these little plastic things to put in, in the plugs, right? You know what I mean? The thing is, if you've got one of these kids that's just fascinated by the plugs and sticking things in there, right? You don't stop loving the child even after the 15th time they've tried to shove something in a place that nothing should be shoved into, okay? You don't stop loving them. You do, however, get a little frustrated. Would you stop that? Stop doing that! But we go over and we redirect, and this is what God is doing over and over again. And those of you parents Even though you are human, how much more, how much better is God who loves you perfectly? Perfectly. Yes, you get frustrated with yourself. No, he doesn't. But he's gonna help you learn that lesson over and over again. The point is you're a daughter and son and that is just as true as your sin. Do you have to own your sin? Yep but you also have to own your identity. God doesn't leave you wallowing in the sin. He restores you back to sonship and daughtership because that's how he wants you to operate properly in the world. That's who you are, ultimately. Just remember, identity is a combination of your values and your beliefs, and one of the things that you must believe in order to live a discipleship life is that you are adopted to daughtership and sonship. That has to be a core belief that that's who I am. That's who God wants me to be. That's who you are. Son, daughter of God, with the Holy Spirit given now as a deposit on your future. That's just as true as anything else in your life. So own your sin, but at the same time, you need to own your identity. You have to own your identity. The other thing that strikes me with that is that if you are truly a daughter or son, that God wants to be with you, that he's present with you, and we have to lean into that presence. And you know what, some days you're not gonna feel it. But you have to start the day with the truth that he is always with you. And he told you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You may not understand all that he's doing, I, I get that, and that's okay. But like Dan said earlier, he's trustworthy even though you don't feel him, even though you don't understand him, does not change the very nature that he is good. And that he settled everything on the cross. Everything. And nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with him. And for whatever reason, he chooses you and me to be a part of that. We're significant in his plan. That's just as true. So I'm speaking the truth in love and I'm getting a little fired up about it. But don't forget who you are. Don't forget who he is and the relationship that you have with him. And that's the the ultimate lesson, I think, here. Do you need to own your sin? Yeah. But you also have to own your identity so that you quit screwing up in the future, right? Let's pray. God, well, I never wish for anybody to blow it, to sin, intentionally or unintentionally. I'm so glad that there are lessons to learn within your word about who you are and who you want us to actually be. And God, my prayer today is for every person seated here. Whatever they're carrying with them, whatever it is, that they would understand <clears throat> that, you are, that they are immeasurably valuable to you. And and I'm also reminded, God, of something else. There are some people here who need to hear this, that sometimes the sin that we carry isn't stuff that we do, but something that has been done to us. For those of you who have been victim of that, I'm sorry. And your value and your worth to God has never changed. That you too are so valuable to him. Valuable enough to send a Savior so that you don't have to stay in that. God, only you can bring healing. Only you can bring hope. Only you can bring strength. Those things that we need to live a faithful life. And so, Holy Spirit, as we sing, my prayer is that you would be active, saying the words that each person needs to hear. God, I pray that their heart is open to truth. Your truth, the reality that is a savior named Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen.